Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A warm welcome to First Move. Fantastic to have you with us for a special Should He Stay or Should He Go edition of the program Elon Musk running a Twitter poll asking if he should step down as CEO. The poll results said 57% yes, 42% no. So basically they're saying, yes, go. Love him or hate him, Musk always creates a Twitter show. Tesla investors, meanwhile, clearly fixated on the blow by blow. The stock off its highs, but still up more than 2% pre-market and set to bounce off a 52-week low. I think the hope there is that Musk steps down from Twitter and spends more of his time on that EV firm. It depends a lot on who replaces him at Twitter, of course, too. Tesla tumbled more than 16% over the past week. It's actually down more than 57% year-to-date on both a broader tech turn, let's be clear, but also selling pressure as Musk used Tesla stock to finance Twitter. Stick with me. The car maker's third largest shareholder also suggesting last week that Musk step down at Tesla too. Oh my goodness, even I'm getting confused. We'll discuss the latest Musk machinations with tech analyst Dan Ives later in the show. He's been a Twitter deal skeptic from day one and says the poll gives Musk a graceful way out of what he calls a nightmare few months. Musk's poll followed his attempt and reporting to on the World Cup face-off in Qatar. Yes, he tweeted throughout the game too. Musk, like the rest of us, I think, full of praise for a game for the ages. It was too exciting. We'll have all the post-match reaction and live reports from both Panis and Buenos Aires coming right up. And from World Cup celebrations and consolidations, consolations, oh my goodness, it is Monday morning, to the stock market's wild holiday gyrations. US investors trying to get into the Christmas spirit after two consecutive weeks of declines, driven by fears that ongoing rate hikes by global central banks will push the United States and others perhaps into recession. U.S. futures little changed and European stocks are higher after a softer handover during the Asian session. But the big Monday market story clearly belongs to Musk. And Paula Monica is here. Quick, Paul, take it away from me because I can't get my words out clearly um, this morning. I know. I'm I know that he just here. <laughs> You're still with me. Um, of course, he put out this poll. You know, we've seen this in the past, though, and he'd already made a decision. We think because we saw the filings before he put out the poll. Do you think the same was true in this case? It's possible. It's easier to justify having made uh, or making a decision and and laying the blame, if you will, at the feet of the Twitter users who voted in the poll. I'm interested to see whether or not he does abide by it, as he said he would. Uh, Is he going to claim now all of a sudden that the bots are a problem again and that maybe there were too many Elon Musk haters, potentially among liberals that were, uh, you know, stacking the deck against him? Uh, I don't know. But uh, since you quoted the clash in your intro, this indecision's bugging me. Yeah, yeah, I know. I mean, maybe Tesla shareholders were furiously 
putting their poll uh, views into here as well, because obviously they want perhaps more focus on um, on Tesla and, and his leadership there. But of course, the problem is, and, and we'll discuss it later with Dan Ives as well, who said that effectively Tesla's become an ATM machine to help finance Twitter. And that doesn't go away, even if Elon Musk is at the helm. He sent out an interesting tweet, though, too. And he said, and it was in response saying, no one wants the job who can actually keep Twitter alive. There is no successor. And he sort of has a fair point here. Yeah, Musk said there's no successor, which doesn't exactly inspire confidence. And he also, there were several other tweets in the past 15 or 16 hours where he talked about the road to bankruptcy and, you know, that there is really not much to be done that can by anyone else to rescue Twitter. And I think it really comes back to the central question, was Elon Musk forced into buying Twitter by a court that said, you know, you have to do this. Because remember, he had that $54.20 a share, $44 billion offer that he then reneged on until he had to buy it. It does make you wonder, is Musk just kind of running out the string here? And, you know, is there a future for Twitter? Does Twitter go away? I don't know. These are all questions that I think only Elon Musk can answer. And uh, he has not yet said what is next after that poll, which, you know, came out uh, not in his favor. Or maybe it is. Maybe it is in his favor, (laughs) truly, if he's happy to going back to sleeping on factory floors for the Model S and the Model 3 instead of sleeping at Twitter and trying to figure out the advertising business. Yeah. And and therein lies the key. Therein lies the key, because it goes back to your ability to monetize this. And I think for all of us that use it, and there is utility in it, I'll put my hands up and say that. Brands use it. People use it every day to to build their profiles. Um, There's a price to pay for that. And he's tried to make that argument, even if it was a little bit... um, uh, well, the execution was a little bit suspect. Um, I did note two days ago, he said Twitter uses by real humans once again reaches all-time highs. Um, so the eyeballs are there. Um, obviously, there are and bigger questions. And if that's the case, that then real humans, not bots, said they don't want him to be the CEO of Twitter anymore. You can't have it both ways, Julie. Touche. Or he can't have it both ways. Moving, moving on quickly since I lost that argument there. Yes, wasn't even trying. Paula Monica, thank you so much for that. And as Amy pointed out, we'll continue to discuss this later in the show. Now, he was once one of the most powerful players in the crypto market. Now, Sam Bankman-Fried is back in court in the Bahamas today. CNN has learned the former FTX CEO is expected to reverse his decision to fight extradition to the United States, where U.S. prosecutors have filed eight criminal charges against him that include fraud and conspiracy. CNN's Patrick Ottman joins us live now from the Bahamas. Patrick, we know what he faces if found guilty of all these charges in the United States, and it's at risk of, what, 115 years uh, in prison. Why do we think the U-turn here and the decision to not fight that extradition call back to the United States? It probably has a lot to do, Julie, with his uh, current circumstances and place of residence. Uh, the notor- notorious Fox Hill president here in Nassau. Uh, this is a prison uh, that has uh, got very... Uh, tough conditions, uh, and for a billionaire who is used to uh, living in uh, 
penthouse apartments and he has a vegan diet and needs certain medications. Uh, and we hear that uh, the prospect of fighting extradition from a prison cell in the Bahamas, uh, understandably, was just not that inviting. He had tried to get bail here, was continuing to seek bail, but uh, it had become a drawn-out process, and he knew that if he stays in the Bahamas, uh, that his uh, home would be this uh, this prison. So uh, that appears to have had a lot to do with the fact that he's now apparently, sources close to the case, tell us ready to leave the Bahamas. That we expect within perhaps the next hour or so, uh, Sam uh, Bankwell, Bankman uh, Freedom, uh, free, excuse me, to uh, arrive here and say that he is giving up his fight uh, against extradition, ready to go back to the United States on a U.S. government plane accompanied by U.S. Marshals uh, and uh, begin the new legal process anew in the United States. And you're very right, facing eight serious charges of conspiracy to commit fraud, fraud and, and, and other uh, federal crimes that could lead to more than a century in prison if he is convicted. Of course, uh, SBF, as he's known, uh, he has said uh, all along that he, uh, he was not responsible, that he perhaps uh, wasn't up on all the details that he should have. Uh, but of course, for the people uh, who've lost uh, their savings, lost over a billion dollars here, uh, those explanations just don't wash. And certainly the United States government is calling this one of the greatest uh, cases of financial fraud in U.S. history. And they're looking for other people uh, in his company, in his uh, now uh, defunct FTX uh, crypto exchange, uh, to uh, essentially testify against him. So even if he live, leaves the Bahamas uh, in the next uh, hours or, or days, uh, his problems are only just beginning. Yes, certainly. And we shall see in the coming hours when he makes their own appearance. And just for any viewers that were concerned, we were showing pictures earlier of last week of when he, um, he appeared there and we saw pictures. So um, we await an appearance today. Patrick, great to have you with us. Thank you. Patrick Hoffman there. To China now, and a terrifying new prediction about the impact of COVID-19. A study says there could be one million new deaths as China braces for a wave of infections following its abrupt exit from its zero COVID strategy. Ivan Watson has more from Hong Kong. Chinese authorities have confirmed at least two fatalities due to COVID in the capital, but the experts using the, the wealth of information that's been gathered from around the world from this pandemic uh, have predicted that those mortality figures are going to grow substantially in the months ahead. Uh, there is a preprint report published by Hong Kong University uh, that has yet to be peer reviewed that is projecting that if the status quo conditions continue, that there could likely be 684 deaths uh, out of every million COVID cases in mainland China. And by our math, that projects close to a million fatalities in the months ahead. Uh, those numbers could be reduced substantially, the scientists of this, who published this report predict, if the Chinese government succeeds in dramatically ramping up vaccinations and getting antiviral medicines out there. Uh, but anyway, you cut it, China is in for a tough, COVID winter in the months ahead. This is all the more dramatic because the Chinese government had been maintaining a zero COVID uh, strategy prior to about a month ago with border closures, with uh, entire cities being locked down whenever there were a few COVID cases detected, with anybody who uh, came in contact with one of those rare COVID cases being shipped off to quarantine camps. And now, after a series of protests across the country, the government uh, seems to have moved back from these restrictions, while also the Omicron variant is spreading like wildfire through the population. 
the narrative from the government has almost transformed from, hey, COVID is a deadly disease that must be stopped at all costs to, hey, it's not as dangerous now, this new variant, and we can perhaps live with it. With one provincial government saying to public sector workers, if you get a mild or asymptomatic case of COVID, you can still go to work. All of this amounts to a sharp uh, U-turn in the rhetoric around this disease, even as experts are predicting that mainland China is in for a potentially deadly COVID winter. Ivan Watson, CNN, Hong Kong. And severe weather in the Gulf of Thailand is hampering efforts to rescue 31 sailors after a Royal Thai Navy warship sank early Monday. Thai authorities say strong winds tilted the ship. Then seawater rushed into the vessel through an exhaust pipe. That then shut down the electrical system, leaving the crew unable to maneuver or pump the seawater back out. That, according to the Thai Navy. 75 crew members have been rescued. At last report, three sailors were in a critical condition. Okay, now to the World Cup. Argentina lifting the trophy after a thrilling final against France. It's the third World Cup title for the Argentines and the first for superstar Lionel Messi. It's madness that it happened the way that it did, but it's amazing. I said at one point that God was going to give it to me, and I don't know why I foresaw it. I felt like it was going to be this one. Stefano Pozzobon joins us now from Buenos Aires. Jim Bitterman is in Paris. Oh, Jim, we'll come to you in a second. But um, Stefano, one can only imagine the celebrations this weekend. Legendary status, I think, for this team. And I'm not even sure what to say about Lionel Messi. Sort of footballing god status, perhaps. Yes, perhaps. Uh, I don't even think we can imagine how these uh, celebrations have been throughout the night. Uh, uh, yesterday, Sunday, here in Buenos Aires, as soon as that uh, uh, penalty, that final penalty went through, it really uh, just, uh, the, po- the population just exploded in joy. And you now are telling me that, uh, we, you know, that, God, that Messi is perhaps compared to God. Well, the front page of this newspaper here in Buenos Aires today definitely agrees with you because uh, here it says Leos, which is a, a pun on uh, the, the Spanish word for God and Messi's name, is an Argentinian. Yesterday, definitely, Julia, was a good day to be an Argentinian. This is a country that is going through some financial hardship. We have inflation at over uh, 90% uh, interannual and uh, we have a political polarization that is as bitter and, uh, and awful as ever. But yesterday, all of these troubles that Argentinian people are facing have been simply swept aside by the joy of football. And yes, fantastic scenes here in Buenos Aires, fantastic celebrations, Julia. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, to your point, I think something that the country really needed and that the people really needed too. Um, Jim, on the other side, I think clearly bitter disappointment, but also huge pride in how well the team fought. And one person in particular, I think a 23-year-old that manages to get a hat-trick and still not win the World Cup. That guy has a huge shining future, I think, ahead of him. You're you're talking about Kylian Mbappe, and I tomorrow really he turns 24 years old. He's only 24. He I tweeted, know. he looked very disappointed after the match, but he tweeted, he said, Nous reviendrons, which in French means we will be back, we'll return. 
And uh, I think that's probably the spirit that uh, is going through most of the French population today. The fact is that uh, they uh, fought hard, the match shifted, the momentum of the match shifted back and forth. Uh, Didier Deschamps, the, the coach, said basically it's a little hard to digest when you come back from nowhere, you think you're going to win, and then you don't win. And it's certainly the way the fans felt. Uh, President Macron said about the same thing when he was trying to console the team last night in Doha. Here's what he said. You have the heart, the finish, the desire, and the talents to be here. And that's why I wanted to come see you to say thank you. You have woken up French men and women who needed it. Thank you to you. So I guess, uh, Julia, the message from France to Argentina would be, don't cry for us, Argentina. <laughs> yeah, see you next time. Oh, but Mbappe's face when he had that golden boot and he walked past the, the sort of World Cup trophy and he was like, I know what I want to do with these two things and I don't want to be holding this one, um, as great as it is. Anyway, Jim, commiserations and Stefano, obviously to the Argentinians, huge congratulations. What a game. Guys, thank you. Okay, coming up from sports to social media, much more on Elon Musk's new poll and the ensuing Twitter turmoil. Plus, a sweet solution to a major climate issue how a new candy is trying to tackle food waste and climate change. Next. Welcome back to First Move. The Twitterverse has spoken by a decisive 57% to 42% margin. A majority of online voters want Elon Musk out as Twitter's company CEO. Musk saying he will abide by the results of the poll, which he in fact commissioned. The poll taking place after another challenging week for Musk's business empire, with Tesla shares slumping 16%. Musk has yet to tweet after the close of voting. Lots of anticipation and uncertainty, of course, over what happens next, including for Dan Ives, who joins us now. He's a tech analyst and managing director at Wedbush Securities, and he's been following what he calls the nightmare Twitter drama from day one. And, and you and I have discussed it now uh, on many occasions, Dan. What do you make of uh, the poll and the result? Look, I think the clock struck midnight. I mean, I think not just investors, but I think those even on Twitter have gotten more and more frustrated since Musk took over Twitter. It's been a nightmare on Elm Street, not just in Twitter, but also for Tesla investors. And I, I believe by the end of the day, he likely steps down or at least puts a succession plan in place, you know, given the poll. Do you think there already was one? Do you think he was expecting this result? Because he did tweet a follow to that saying, you know, be careful what you wish for effectively. And then he tweeted, um, no one wants the job who can actually keep Twitter alive. There is no successor. Well, you take a step back. This is going to go down as, in our opinion, the most overpriced M&A deal in tech in, in the history of deal making. I mean, $44 billion for an asset that we believe today is probably closer worth 12 to 15 billion. It's been a train wreck. And, and really since late October, since Musk bought it, it's just gotten worse and worse. Advertisers have run for the hills and, you know, it's bleeding, you know, money. And I think that's the problem because ultimately it's selling Tesla and what's really been his personal ATM machine to fund the losses of Twitter. 
You know, it's interesting, and you can quantify it for us because I know you, you you think you've got that in terms of what the cash burn is currently, at least on an annualised basis. There was a, a relief rally, at least pre-market, though it's faded slightly in, in Tesla's stock. And the argument being made is that it means that he can refocus on what you call effectively the jewel in the crown and, and, and focus on that business. But to your point about it being, or at least having been up to this point, an ATM machine to finance Twitter, that doesn't go away, surely, if the next CEO can't turn around the, the ability to monetize Twitter in a, in a better way. Well, that's the biggest problem because Musk ultimately, look, this is a $44 billion mistake, but the nightmare grows. It doesn't get better. And no matter who takes over, there's still a cash burn that ultimately needs to be funded by Musk. And also they've taken on debt, a levered deal in this type of environment. I think that's the issue. Look, it all starts with advertisers. The controversy that Musk bring, the banning of journalists, it's gone away. It's the exact opposite of freedom of speech. And that's the biggest problem here is that this has been brand deterioration, a black eye for Musk, and ultimately a black eye brand deterioration for Tesla. But can we look at the other side of this as well? And I, I sort of briefly made this point with um Paula Monica earlier about the utility value that it provides to certain journalists, to companies that raise their profile, brand power, whatever it is. And even Elon Musk is saying, and it was two days ago, admittedly, that, that they're seeing you know, the greatest level of eyeballs and, and engagement that they've ever seen on Twitter. It, there's a utility value here to those that use Twitter. And arguably, that doesn't come for free. It should be paid for. However, the execution of it it's all the execution. And, and that's the fundamental problem here is monetizing it. And essentially what Musk has done is that since he took this over, it's become more of a quicksand situation. The more controversy, the more advertisers ultimately run for the hills. I mean, the engagement's there. It's really a matter of execution. And so far, you know, this has really been a twilight zone. And that's why I think Musk is finally reading the room for him to sort of take a step back and also focus where 95% of his wealth is in the golden child, which is Tesla, because those investors have continued to have uppercut and gut punches because of the Twitter situation. Yeah, and it's sort of become more about him specifically than it has about Twitter and the Twitter story and the Twitter business model, which perhaps um, a little less noise and a little bit more... Um, focus on that perhaps might be might be beneficial. It was actually number two, this Musk finding a new Twitter CEO on your top 10 Christmas wish list. And I'm just looking through this now. And actually, number three on that was Microsoft winning against the FTC for the um, Activision deal, the big gaming deal, uh, among others. And we're showing them. And I encourage people to have a look at your top 10 wish list because it's interesting. What's the probability of that? The Microsoft deal against the FTC? Yeah. yeah. That's going to be a Game of Thrones between mm. Redmond and FTC. But we believe Microsoft ultimately wins in that deal and gets Activision. That's important, drawing a line in the sand for big tech, that they could do more deals. You know, FTC, this is one not just Microsoft. But I think many focused on this in terms of the broader ramifications. But we believe the trophy ultimately ends up in Redmond. I tell you what, Dan, there is no shortage of excitement in this sector which is great news for you, even if it means you don't get to do dinners or sleep or do, do all the normal things because it just never stops. Um, happy holidays. Thank you for your you time You too. Today. Thanks for having me. Dad, I was there. Thank you. Okay, coming up here on First Move, a fashion brand with ambitious expansion plans, the global return of eSprits. That's next. 
Welcome back to First Move and the international comeback of Esprit, the fashion brand, now returning to the United States with pop-up stores in Los Angeles and in New York just months after it reopened in Asia. It's also launched innovation hubs in New York and London to focus on things like technology, design and creativity. A dramatic shift after the company retreated from most markets except Germany. Esprit bounced back to profitability last year for the first time in five years. And at the centre of it all, new CEO, William Pack, and he joins us now. William, fantastic to have you on the show. And wow, you guys have a lot going on. I have to say that. Just explain for those that perhaps remember the brand, remember the retreat and now the re-rise, what the differences are today. Hi, thanks for having me here. So the main difference is that for the first time in decades, Esprit is going back to the heritage of what made people love it in the first place, which is basically good design, good quality, and good fit. This has actually been missing for a couple of decades. So we went back to the archives and tried to figure out what people really liked about it. And this is something very different than the last time they tried to expand about 20 years ago. Yeah, it's interesting. I think the lost identity in many ways is is the sort of key part of what you said there and um, a coherent message over what you represent. I guess the crucial part of that or not, you can tell me, is who the customer is in your mind. Because even just looking over what you what you have now for sale, there's the sort of black label, the more expensive products, the, the white label, the less expensive products. Who's the target here? Who is the customer? Yes, this is a very good question because what we're trying to do is make sure that the customer has a clear message of what we are and who we, who we are. So first things first, um, entering New York City as a brand is something very important to us. So we're actually moving the creative office here so that for the first time in decades, all of the clothing and all of, uh, all of the accessories will be designed in New York City. So creative office, branding, marketing, photo studios, all going to be based there. So this is a very big move. So having done that, uh, we now are focusing on the rebranding of the, the product lineup, which is going to be more about a metropolitan outdoor flair. So somebody would be comfortable wearing um, Esprit clothing to a Sunday brunch or a good time out with friends. So it's kind of like a metropolitan outdoor elevated casual clothing. <laughs> metropolitan outdoor casual clothing. It's very bright. I can see lots of bright colors as well. Um, interesting that you said, and I think this is an interesting one as well with the, the manufacturing, or not the manufacturing, the, the design, the innovation hubs in places like London, New York, and I know you have one in Amsterdam too, but you also have your headquarters located in Hong Kong where you're coming to us now. And you've also, and I've said this and seen you say this, it sort of locates you closer in terms of the headquarters with your manufacturing base in China too, though that's been dramatically streamlined as well. Talk to me about that as a, an important part of managing costs, perhaps, and, and supply chains, which we know have been particularly crucial over the last few years. Yes, so as a part of our total retransformation of the brand, um, in order to make things uh, smooth to expand going forward, we underwent a one and a half year restructuring period. So as a part of the restructuring, what we did was change the entire supply chain network uh, for one thing. We actually uh, do things two ways. One is by relationship. So we kind of uh, have all of the partners uh, understand our growth strategy and trust us. And we work together to plan out going forward. This way we can avoid a lot of the supply disruptions. So we've diversified multiple countries. 
But the second thing that we do is we are very data driven so that um, what one thing we really did was create a mathematics division, actually. So by doing this, we can monitor inventory levels and supply chain bottlenecks on a mm. live, uh, almost minute by minute basis, as opposed to what it was before, which was more like weekly updates and that sort of thing. Yeah, and to the fashion uh, aspect of this as well, I believe four key seasonal drops from 13 as well. I mean, gosh, to have more than one a month in the past is um, um, exciting, I think, to say the least. So even streamlining that part of the business, I'm sure, will help protect margins to some degree. Is that also about protecting against some of the inflationary pressures, be they input costs, uh, energy costs, whatever it is? How are you going to tackle that part of it? Because that's certainly something that we speak to about with CEOs all the time, sort of managing that. So for about the last uh, two decades, Esprit has been doing this almost 12 uh, seasons a year, 13 seasons a year. So it became kind of um, aimless, I think, uh, which is what we changed from the very beginning. So we're focusing mm -hmm. on four seasons, as you mentioned, spring, summer, fall, winter. And it's going to be based on core brand pillars, like it's playful, modern, cool. And these are the, the pillars that uh, Esprit was built on from 1970s, 80s, 90s, which is what people remember. So this going forward is something that we did with our rebranding. But in terms of um, inflation affecting the things that we're doing, we, we see that inflation has been peaking since about the middle of this year and declining uh, continuously. Hopefully the, uh, uh, the central banks of the world are ahead of this so that we can avoid um, unnecessary uh, re-spikes in this inflation. But because fashion and retail have to plan out things a year in advance, we had to take action now. And because of our retransformation, what we did was we became basically debt-free. We have a very good financial foundation so that we can expand uh, through the rest of the world, in particular the United States, so that we can have all of our stores open by the end of next year. This is something yeah. very different than others. I was about to say, you're, as others are retrenching, you're expanding, which actually for me was one of the key differences. And I wondered whether you'd begin there in a way. But to your point, you sort of have the financial flexibility to do that, which is very different from others. Um, I actually just want to ask you, as someone who is based in Hong Kong, um, the situation there with the relaxation of, of COVID measures, whether that's in Shanghai and Beijing and some of the biggest cities in particular, and or what Hong Kong's doing, how concerned are people there and how are you managing that with with your employees and your workers there and and sort of looking over the next six months of, of what it means whether that's manufacturing operating even just as an individual living William so after, after uh, two years of basically restructuring the company and becoming global again including administrative headquarter move to Hong Kong uh, including the creative headquarters in New York City and and so on and so forth because of this, we're able to actually work on a 24-hour basis so that we become a little bit more productive in that once we pass the workload on at the end of our day, depending where you are in the world, you can actually achieve twice as much work in, in one year. So having done that, uh, we've kind of mastered the online workspace. But of course, it's still very important to have meetings in person and also group meetings and, and collaborations. So opening up um, over the last couple of months over here really helped because um, free flow information is something that's very important to, to global business. Yeah, well-timed. Now we just have to, um, to see what it looks like, uh, I think, in, in practice. William, good luck. 
you're a busy man, I know, and you've got a really busy uh, six to 12 months coming up. I'm looking forward to chatting again soon and um, tracking progress. Great to have you on. Thank you. William Pack there, the CEO of Esprit. Still to come here on First Move, fighting food waste with a fruit candy. Yes, you heard me right. The CEO of Climate Candy joining us now with a sweet way to tackle climate change. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. New this morning, a landmark agreement to address the global biodiversity crisis. More than 190 countries adopting a sweeping agreement that sets targets on protecting nature. They're promising to protect 30% of the world's land and oceans by 2030. Currently, only 17% of land and 10% of oceans are protected. And campaigners say it's a huge milestone for conserving vital ecosystems, even as detractors say it doesn't go far enough. But it's a step forward. And very much in this vein, one of the big contributors to greenhouse gas emissions is food waste. It's estimated around a third of all food that's grown goes to waste and represents roughly 8% of emissions globally. And that is where my next guest comes in. Climate Candy has a sweet approach to tackling waste. It takes unharvested and imperfect farm produce and turns it into plant-based candies it calls faves. Now, carrots and candy don't normally go so well together, but CEO Amy Keller says her goal isn't to replace candy, but to make space for healthy options whilst having a positive climate impact. Joining us now is Amy Keller. She's CEO of Climate Candy. I have to say I love carrot cake, so that's not quite right. But just explain the vision for Climate Candy and um, how it all works. Absolutely. So I grew up around candy. I come from a family that owns a candy factory, Spangler Candy Company. We make two billion dum-dums every year, along with many of the other nostalgic candies you know. Uh, I got to witness the power candy has, the ability to still fun into any moment, and I wanted to push it further, extend it beyond simply our individual moments into something with even more lasting impact, like my partners Kevin Wall and Dr. Seuss Molly did for Live Earth with Al Gore. So my worlds collided when we were in Svalbard, Norway, visiting the Global Seed Bank to learn about food security. I witnessed the United Nations installing generators due to climate change to keep the glacier refrigerated for all the backup seeds of the world. So while on this trip, I was reading Drawdown by Paul Hawken and learned that 40% of food grown globally is wasted. So I wrote the company business plan in the Arctic Circle for Climate Candy to create (laughs) Faves Candy from imperfect fruits and vegetables for the health of people on the planet. Yeah, and you're saying that um, the sort of chewy fave candies contain 96% fruits and vegetables, including apple juices, fruit purees, sweet potato flour, just to give um, our viewers a sense. Now, I couldn't agree more with you. And as you said, you came from a a sort of sweet candy um, producing family and a a pretty big one. Um, Very few people, I think, would say to you they eat candies because they're healthy. They eat them because they're naughty. They taste great. Um, and, and there is a difference, I think, because I've tried many of them and I've tested it on a lot of people as well between faves and between something like a dum-dum. Who's the customer here? I guess is the question that I'm asking. And I, I do think it's an important one. Is it someone who's climate conscious and looking for sort of a relatively healthy alternative to candy? 
Well, I believe climate consciousness is more relevant than ever. And as a result, companies are working to improve the impact of food production. So companies are talking about sustainability efforts in a time when consumers expect brands and retailers to do more related to carbon and climate. So with that rising demand, it's a way for shoppers to say, we are prepared to stop buying our favorite brands if you don't commit to measuring the product's carbon footprint. So it's high time for people to realize the solution to heal ourselves and the planet is what we choose to eat. And that includes all of us. So we use phase as an educational moment around one, what is in your food and the need for people to get five to eight servings of fruits and vegetables per day. And two, to discuss climate change in an accessible way through candy. So with 25% of perfectly imperfect produce going unharvested on farms, and these unharvested for produce waste vital energy and contribute to high climate change. Climate candy rescues unharvested fruits and vegetables from farms and gives them new life as faves candy. Okay, so I, I get the, the proposition here, and I think it's vitally important that we do more to protect the planet, but I'm, I'm sort of being controversial deliberately just to hear what you say. Um, seven pieces as a serving, I believe that provides you one of your five pieces of fruit and vegetables a day. Um, I sort of did a weight-by-weight weight comparison with Starburst, which is a, a sweet, a candy, I think, that probably most people around the world would recognize. And just on a weight basis, it's about, these are about four times more expensive. So if you're asking somebody to, to sort of substitute, um, perhaps for something that doesn't taste as sweet, obviously, as, as traditional candy, it costs a lot more. Um, do, do you really believe that people are willing to, to pay a higher price in order to protect the planet? Because that's what you're saying. This comes down to caring enough about the planet to, to make a change. Absolutely. I think that people are starting to learn about the products that are going to waste and they're understanding that climate change is escalating while people are going hungry. And this is unacceptable, wasting that much food, all while running out of land, water and healthy soil. So when they look at food loss, starting at the production level and the low market prices and high harvest costs, often that are uneconomical to farmers, it's almost a way for consumers to give back, to be involved with those that are making our food. So by cutting food waste by half in the U.S., we would actually reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 75 million metric tons each year. And that generates an economic return of $75 billion. So I think when we look at the importance of reducing food waste, it leads to several key co-benefits that get at critical issues, climate justice, climate adaptation, water scarcity, and biodiversity loss. And that's why we work side by side with the nonprofit 501c3 and the founder, Drew Fitzgerald. So when I look at what we're doing, you know, in the side of uh, despite farm to food bank uh, efforts to recover this unharvested food, the vast majority is left in fields are going to waste. And with food service closing during COVID, Farms yeah. that typically sold to those markets found themselves with Struggle. huge surpluses. Yeah. Um, so I think Amy, that there's just all this news and people are starting to be more conscious about it. I think they have to get seriously far more conscious, though, to, to sort of make this kind of investment. I, I love what you're doing, though, and I love your passion. Are you profitable? 
And is that a conversation that you're having with, with investors? Because you didn't take family money, from my understanding. You got independent mm -hmm. investors. So just very quickly, because I have about a minute left, are you profitable and how are those conversations going? Because you need believers. So we, <laughs> right, absolutely. Uh, so we decided to go out to an amazing group and, and we have a lead investor uh, with Truesdale Ventures and PTK Capital. Um, they get, got behind the mission and vision of the company. And through that, we ended up with angel investors that truly believe about what we're doing for health of people and the planet. Um, in regards to where we're going out uh, this year, obviously direct to consumer and e-commerce. So uh, we found that that worked through that outlet, but now people are starting to go back into stores. So you're seeing us in the urban outfitters, you're starting to see us out there in the markets. And I think that's super important too, is to see us at the retail level, not just seeing us at events, uh, mm. at Flipper's Roller Boogie Palace, where you are there in New York City at Rockefeller Center, <laughs> or seeing us at um, those type of, of things that you would normally see something that's a little alternative, right? Um, yeah. So I really want to see us someday in school vending machines and seeing us in places where it's that educational moment, science centers, aquariums, you know, places where families go and they'll remember that they learned this lesson about climate change. Amy, come back and talk to us soon, please. And um, you definitely win the award for the best guest Christmas tree in the backdrop. That tree looks amazing. Um, thank you for joining Fantastic. us. Fantastic. We'll speak again soon. You're welcome. <laughs> the CEO of Climate Candy there. Happy holidays. Thank you. Stay with First Move. More to come. Welcome back to First Move and U.S. stocks are up and running this Monday and no World Cup-like excitement on Wall Street for you. Call it, if you will, a messy open and not in a good way. U.S. stocks softer after last week's more than 2% drop for both the Nasdaq and for the S&P 500. And checking in once again on Tesla shares, they are some 2.4% higher after the results of a Musk-commissioned Twitter poll showed a majority of those who voted wanted him out as the CEO of Twitter. Musk saying he will abide by the results, but he has yet to comment on the final poll results. And before we bid farewell to World Cup 2022, let's take a second to toot our own horns here on First Move. The Chatterley Cup accurately predicting the winner of the tournament with Argentina's stock market up almost 100% so far this year. And the French Cat Caron down some 10%. The Chatterley Cup pitted World Cup teams against each other to see which country's stock markets came up on top on the stock market pitch. I think that was a complete accident. But anyway, we won't mention that again. There have been many ups and downs since the World Cup began four weeks ago. Our Don Riddell runs us through some of the highlights and some of the lowlights too. Take a look at this. It was 12 years in the making, arguably the most controversial World Cup of all time. Allegations of corruption and criticism of Qatar's civil and human rights records dominated the build-up. But on the eve of the tournament, the FIFA president deflected all of the criticism. You want to criticize someone, come to me. Criticize me, here I am, you can crucify me. I'm here for that. Don't criticize Qatar, don't criticize the players. And when the action kicked off, it was relentless. The host team, Qatar, quickly slipped out of view, but many of the underdogs had their day. Saudi Arabia's sensational win against Argentina set the tone for a tournament of upsets. Japan came from behind to stun Germany the next day. In the background, the controversy lingered. Protests about Qatar's domestic policies were brief but impactful. In saying that they were silenced, Germany found their voices. And in refusing to sing, Iran signaled their empathy for the bloody uprising back home. For some, it was a painful World Cup. 
Christian Pulisic's injury was enough to make everybody's eyes water. You called it, I, I, I believe, the pelvic contusion heard around the world. Do you, felt do, around do, the world. Felt, oh, felt around the world. But the real pain was the loss of two migrant workers who died as a result of workplace accidents during the tournament and the sudden passing of two media members who were covering the action, the Qatari photojournalist Khalid al-Mislam and the celebrated American sports writer Grant Wall. On the field, history was made. Stephanie Frappard led the first all-female refereeing crew at a Men's World Cup, and the group stage kept the fans on the edge of their seats, while the drama put news anchors out of their minds. I saw you last hour. I have absolutely no hesitation in saying to you, this is yours, mate. This heap of mess is yours <laughs> to try and interpret <laughs> and make... <laughs> Richard, I'm not even sure I want it. It's so complicated. Uh, Issa Suarez asked me earlier, so if yeah. this happens and this happens, what does that mean? And I was like, I need to consult my notes. I don't know. And when the dust had finally settled, a new world order emerged. This was Asia's most successful tournament and the same too for Africa, for whom Morocco became the standard bearers for a continent and the Arab people. The Atlas Lions had blazed a trail to the semifinals, making heroes of themselves and stars of their mothers. We are playing home. This is... Uh... A good time for everybody from Qatar, from the Middle East, the Arab countries, all over the world. They love it, they're having a different experience, and they're enjoying their time. But in the end, we got the final that many were expecting. France against Argentina was an instant classic. Kylian Mbappe scored a hat-trick, but was heartbroken as Argentina edged it on a penalty shootout, meaning that Lionel Messi has now won the only trophy to have eluded him, elevating him to the pantheon of greats and finally placing him alongside his great compatriot Diego Maradona. FIFA say that this has been the best ever World Cup, History will be the judge, but for so many different reasons, it has certainly been one of the most memorable. Don Rodell, CNN, Qatar. And well done, Argentina. And finally, Christmas time in Ukraine looks very different this year, but a symbol of strength and invincibility is standing tall in Kyiv. Take a look at this. A Christmas tree complete with generator-powered energy-saving lights is on display in the Ukrainian capital's Sofia Square. The artificial tree, which comes in at 12 metres tall, has been decorated with roughly 1,000 blue and yellow balls and white doves with a trident placed on top. Flags of countries supporting Ukraine are also featured at the bottom. And that's it for the show. Connect the World is up next and I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 